Hey everyone, welcome to this podcast brought to you by Raptor Aid and hosted by me, Jimmy Hill. During the coronavirus lockdown, we decided to host some live interviews with raptor conservationists and experts from all over the world. The podcast you're about to listen to was recorded during the lockdown period live on Facebook. Apologies if some of it sounds a little bit disjointed and we go a little bit off track with questions from the audience, but hopefully you'll enjoy listening to your favourite expert right here on Raptor Rambles. In this interview, I talk to one of my closest friends when it comes to birds of prey. All-round nesting superstar Steve Roberts works on Springwatch as their chief nest finder, but is also recognised as one of the leading experts on honey buzzards here in the UK. I've been fortunate enough to spend many hours with Steve out in the field. His knowledge is absolutely breathtaking and he's quite funny to boot as well. So I hope you enjoy hearing from Steve. He doesn't really give many interviews, although he does like to give the odd talk. And so sit back, grab a cup of tea and listen to the Welsh wizard. Right. Okay. I think we're live, Steve. I think we've finally managed to get it to work. Um, So hello, everyone. Hello, anyone who's decided to tune in. Uh, Welcome to another Q&A. Well, actually, it's the last one before next week. We've got a special guest next week, which is a surprise at the moment. Um, so, yeah, this is the you're, the you're the last one, Mr. Robert. So welcome, my good friend, Steve Roberts. Thanks for joining us. So you've got somebody special next week, which um, <laughs> obviously I'm not. <laughs> this is the yeah. this is the last dog's body we're having, and next week we're having somebody good. <laughs> oh God! Yeah, that's that's kind yeah, of well, it. Well, well put, Jimmy. Make me feel good. <laughs> well, you you know what I think. You know, well, I should have introduced you as the Welsh Wizard anyway. That's how I should have introduced you. <laughs> Can I just I say, Jim, your bandwidth is low. I know my bandwidth. It's low, telling me. It's telling well, me on my computer. Well, I t- well, if if it completely cuts out like it did the other day with Ed Drew, it you'll have to carry on talking and wait for me to log back in. Then Jimmy's I'll bandwidth is, bandwidth is low. It says. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, let's start. Steve, I told you this. I always start the same way. So, tell us a bit about. Well, I'll tell I'll tell people a bit about what you get up to. Anyone who's just tuned in, so you are a nest. I always call you a nest finder extraordinaire. That's why I call you the Welsh wizard and a, a tree climbing extraordinaire. But you're obviously heavily involved in monitoring loads of different species. Being obviously on Raptor Aids Facebook page, we're going to talk about raptors. But you are. I will give you a bit of free license to talk about other birds if you, if you want. If you got if, if you got. If, even though you're not interested in them remotely. <laughs> or food. Yeah, so, um, but obviously you're involved with Springwatch heavily. Well, you've just finished Springwatch for the year. And, uh, and yeah, there's countless other things that I will try and cover along the way. Tell us about, I always get everyone, the people that we have on to talk about the same thing. How did you get into nature? What was, what was the, who was an influence or what was the, the first thing you remember that really hooked you into nature and wildlife? 
don't I don't know for sure what was the stimulus originally, but my father, who died when I was very, very young, had an aviary, kept budgery gas, and, I, and I, he died when I was just four. But I can still remember going into the aviary with him and um, all the budgies flying around. Whether that was a, a, an influence, I don't know, but I always had an interest in birds and particularly in finding nests. And like most youngsters, you know, we would go off up the mountain or, or around the lanes looking for birds' nests. And from an early age, I, unlike all the others, I never wanted to collect any eggs. And I think probably unusually amongst most people of my vintage now, through all my life, even as a youngster, I didn't start by collecting eggs like many did. Never, never collected an egg in my life. And um, I always sort of um, think I realized quite early on that when you, um, when you find a nest, the, the, the bird itself for a short period of its life is sort of captive. It's, it's got to keep coming back to its nest. And I realized that if you just left the nest as it was, you could have opportunities to watch that bird in a way that you couldn't normally. They tend to be things that are a bit skittish and then fly off. So yeah. uh, things like that sort of stimulated me to start with. And then probably when I was about 11 or 12, I met somebody called uh, Bert Hamer, who was uh, the secretary of what was then the Pontypool Ornithological Society, which then grew to be the Mimnishan um, Ornithological Society and then ended up as the the Gwent Ornithological Society, and um, uh, and he was a big influence uh, on my interest in birds. Um, probably the major influence from about eleven years of age onwards. I can remember I met him because, um, like a lot of kids, we'd all gone to some wood somewhere looking for sort of sparrowhawk nests, which would have been quite rare when I was, you know, in the in the um, early 60s uh, yeah. because of pesticides and our method of finding nests in those days was throwing sticks up and if you saw a bunch of sticks up the tree you threw as many things at it as you could to anything on it and um, all these sticks were raining down on the ground and after about five minutes uh, right underneath this squiddle's dray that we were throwing things at a, a duck took off its nest you know with a seven or eight eggs in a mallard well we never seen anything like it eggs that big so the lady whose farm we were on took me to meet Bert Hamer to tell him about my fantastic find of a mallard's nest and he sort of uh, took me under his wing then oh brilliant okay and did that so did that carry on wow I didn't realize you've been finding nests for so so long I'm not saying you're old by the way um but does that <laughs> Is that, that's carried on then because obviously you 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 know you went to school and and ended up becoming a teacher that's your that was your profession were you still doing it then when you were teaching yes yes they were always uh, uh, they went to a period where I did very little which when I went to I went to art college and obviously it was all um, sex and drugs and rock and roll wouldn't it you know and so <laughs> Uh, you know, and flower power and peace and love and all that. And I, you know, like most people in their late teens, you know, and early 20s, I certainly wasn't going off bird nesting. Though I still did a bit of it. I sneaked off and did a little bit, but it, it did go in abeyance then. Um, but, you know, as soon as I settled down and 
got on with life, it all came back. And in actual fact, if I'm honest, I think it's grown and grown and grown as I've got older and older. And I'm yeah. probably more passionate about it now than at any time in my life. You know, it's just a long way that continue. Absolutely. I hope that I will shuffle off my mortal coil, desperately looking for yet another nest as, I, <laughs> as I, uh, I've been trying hard to find. Brilliant. So, what in the early days? What were what what were the species when you when you got into it? So Bert took you under his wing. What were the species that you really wanted to see? Because I know from talking to you outside of this now, I know the things that make you you know get excited and and the sort of things you're into. But in the early days, what what species were you really interested in? Obviously, you mentioned sparrowhawks were rare in the sixties. Was there anything that was a real coup? Well, you know, yeah, birds of prey were in a parlous state then because of um, uh, pesticide poisoning. So the, even birds that we consider common now were, were quite scarce. Yeah. And I can remember being taken, you know, we didn't have any means of getting anywhere, but the, the ornithological society, when they used to go on trips somewhere, you'd have to cycle across to Bert's house and the convoy of cars would go off, you'd squeeze in. And I got to go to places as a youngster that I'd never imagined. You know, I didn't know they existed. You know, yeah. And I went to a place called Oak Lane in Llanelan, which is, well, I was there last night looking for night jazz. And it's only a few miles from here. But when I was a young lad in Sebastopol, it was I was, it was like going to Africa or something. They took me to this Oak Lane and I got out of the car in this amazing environment and off I disappeared with my friend, Frank Schillerman, and we went bird nesting. And we found a big nest in the top of a big beech tree, I can remember, at the top of a little valley, and um, with some buzzards flying around. Now, buzzard was a rare bird then as well. And I can remember the first big climb I ever did. I climbed all the way up this beech tree, and um, they're in this nest with these two eggs. And I can see that now as if it was yesterday. And I, I think that sort of sold me on birds of prey. Um, and like you, I, you know, and I like many people, we are beguiled by birds of prey. Fantastic things, aren't they? But, yeah. but that's not all for me. I like all, all bird nesting, you know, but I, I've got a special place for birds of prey. And maybe that, I can remember that moment. I can remember my first sparrow walk as well, uh, yeah. you know, in Goitre Firwood. And, 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 and when we're talking of being 11 and 12 and 13 years of age, and yeah. um, they were big finds in those days. And, and when you climbed up the trees, you know, you were kids in wellies and duffel coats. <laughs> and we never got killed, I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, that was that's what I was going to ask you about. Because um, we'll, we'll come back to nest finding in, in a bit more detail, because I, I, I know there's loads of, loads of knowledge you can impart on people. But tree climbing, that's, I never forget, you'll probably... Two things I remember with tree climbing with you. No, three actually. The first, the first time we ever got together um, was long-eared owls. I think was one of the first times anyway. Um, and you, um, yeah, you climbed the tree opposite the nest, and I made the stupid mistake. We didn't really know each other then, and I made the stupid mistake of questioning the great Steve Roberts as to why he was climbing the the tree opposite the uh, the, the long-eared owl nest but I think you quickly shot me down um from what I remember then hob a hobby nest at um 
Newent that time. And I remember, I can't, I was really ill and I was sat at the bottom of the tree and I've never seen anyone climb a tree so fast in all my life. Like, I think I looked down and then looked up and you were already up there at the top and it wasn't high, super high. And then there was, yeah, then there was when... It must have been 200 feet. must have been 200 feet, Jim. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it might have felt it to you. I don't, I don't think it was. No, and then there was, yeah. What was the other... I think there was the... I, I might have got my nest muddled up here. There was one where you literally used a, a hanging branch and pulled, pulled yourself in. But before you, before you did that, you patted me on the belly and said, watch this fat lad. And, and shot off up the tree. So tree climbing comes naturally to you, doesn't it? There's, do, you, do you enjoy it, is, is what I'm getting at, because it seems like you're so good at it, you must, or is it just a, you just do it because it's a, ne I know it's a necessary, but do you enjoy it, or it is what it is? Um, all kids, when, when we were young, different now, all kids could climb trees. Everybody, yeah. it was like something that you used to, you used to do. It was funny. We had a place that we used to meet when I lived in in Pontypool. We'd meet some boys down the wood, and, and they were always down by the climbing trees. And when you went out to meet them, they were all up trees. They were all sitting in trees talking to each other like 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 monkeys, you know. All <laughs> and you'd climb up and, and have a conversation with them. It was just um, a natural thing for young people. It's a, a, a dying art, if you ask me. I mean, so many youngsters now don't want to climb trees. But uh, yeah, you have to be able to climb trees to be able to see into some of the nests that you want to see into and to find some of the nests you want to find. But it, it's also challenging. And anything that's challenging uh, is quite like for firm, isn't it? There's a bit of risk with it and all the rest of it. And all those things make you feel a little bit more alive. So... Um, yeah, I enjoy climbing trees. And one of the great pleasures I get when I climb up to a nest and look in um, is just the joy of looking in there. But, but climbing up a big tree and think and look down at all the people on the ground who are waiting for the chicks to come down or waiting to be told what's in there. And I'm thinking my reward for all my effort is I'm looking in there and seeing that lovely bowl with leaves in it and eggs in it and... And then you can look around and see what view the birds had. It's a bit special, yeah. So I do like climbing trees. And I, yeah. I like to think I haven't come across one yet that by hook or by crook, we haven't been able to get up. Some of them would have been a bit tricky, but we've always managed to get up them somehow. We haven't had to walk away defeated. Yeah. I Well, I, yeah, I, I always think back to the when I was a bit younger and, and it we, we used to climb trees as kids. We, we had one oak tree in the middle of this the village green, big thing, and we'd climb up that and not think anything of it. And then I carried that on into, yeah, into monitoring birds. But now I always laugh because I think I used to climb with nothing. I didn't use any ropes or anything, even when I did the first nest that I did. And now I wouldn't dream of it. And even I, I remember, if I can think back, I can think of the odd nest that I've done on a I don't know a thin pine and I've got the old disco leg and I can't stop my and my leg shaking like and I'm there going pull yourself together do you you don't get do you get you, I can't imagine the great Steve Roberts gets that anymore it's just it's just another tree isn't it so well uh, Jim there are things that they think back on like you just said that make 
makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up, the stupidity of, of what we were doing. I can remember getting into a, um, a peregrine's nest when peregrines were still quite scarce. We used to do a lot of work with peregrines. And I can remember getting into a peregrine's nest and being lowered over a bit of an overhang, which I couldn't get past with my mate's barber jacket, mm -hmm. which was like, um, hang on, let me just shut that off. My mate's barber jacket. We were using it as a rope. He had the sleeve and I had the other sleeve and I was hanging over there on the barber jacket to get into the nest. I can always remember another thing. I'd go into an eagle's nest. We were ringing eagles on Mel and climbing down with no ropes, no gear like that, climbing down into a nest there, which had a very tricky overhang and it was wet. And, and I got in there and managed to lower myself in, couldn't get out. So I'm sitting there looking out over a massive sort of cliff and in the end thinking we're going to have to get um, mountain rescuing or something. And in the end, I had to take my weldons off and my socks off and throw them down over the cliff and uh, climb up my bare feet and just managed to get enough perches to get out from there with a sort of 300 foot underneath you. But stupid, uh, crazy things, you know. Uh, yeah, no, I've been... I've been... Not, wouldn't do it now. No, not now. My nerve would, would, wouldn't let me do that now. No, I know. I must point out to anyone who's tuned in to this, when we're talking about some of these species, this is all done on the license as well, and, and with all the correct paperwork. This isn't just Steve's going off on a jolly. It's all it's all licensed and, and part of you know monitoring schemes such as the BTO. So when it if we go back to go back to nest finding and, and monitoring, what is what is the art to to nest finding then for you, Steve? You have found so many nests. What are, the, what are the things you think you really need to have? Well, I think that one of the big things about nest finding, as opposed to being a bird watcher, to my mind anyway, this is what I think, other people might disagree, but to be able to find a bird's nest, you have to try and get inside the bird's head a bit. It doesn't want you to find its nest wherever they put it. It either put it in well hidden or it's in a difficult place to, to reach or whatever. It, lots of different They don't want you to find it. And so there's a challenge to finding it. And to, and to do that, you have to try and interpret what that bird's behavior is. There's no language. There's nothing. There's nothing written down anywhere. You've got to watch those birds. And you've got to try and determine whether those birds are giving you any signals or clues or are they making any mistakes <laughs> which are giving the show away. Um, and um, I quite enjoy that uh, closeness you feel with birds when you are trying to locate their nests, where you really have to get an understanding of their behaviour. They're doing things that to most people, I believe, to be patronising in any way, but I just think that most people just see a bird hopping about or flying around and enjoy seeing it, and they don't attach much more to it than that. An example yeah. would be, you know, honey buzzards are my uh, sort of speciality. Somebody will tell me, oh, I, 
I saw a honey buzzard yesterday. And the first question I will ask, I'll say, what was it doing? And they'll go, um, uh, what do you mean, what was it doing? Flying around. Yeah, but was it low? Was it high? Was it circling out? Was it gliding in? Did it look like it was on a mission? Did it, was it carrying something? A whole raft of, of questions. Did it come out and go away straight away? Or did it come out and meander around for five minutes, like as if it didn't have anything to do? Was it yeah. was it looking suspicious? And our, our bird looks suspicious, I don't know. He's looking over its shoulder, you know. The thousand things, and they look at you as if, you know, you're not all there. Why are you asking me all these questions? It was just flying around. <laughs> and most people can't answer the questions you're asking, yet all those things were happening. Yeah. That bird obviously came out of somewhere or appeared from somewhere and went somewhere and was doing something in between, but they find it very difficult to, to recall all that because they're not concerned about those sorts of things. They're just enjoying looking at its plumage and um, watching it flying around and they're not worrying about those things. I mean, the, the funny thing is whenever we look at a, a honey buzzard, for example, most people, all they want to tell you about, oh, it's had a lovely gray head. I saw the bars on its tail. I saw this, I saw that. All we ask is, was it carrying anything? <laughs> First thing we're looking at is <laughs> yeah. its feet. You know, has it got a lump in its feet? You know, is it going to go to a nest? So it's just a, yeah. a funny the way we've got a different um, outlook on things. Well, but that's why I enjoy so much bird nesting. I feel I've got a connection with birds as a result of that that, um, yeah, I feel I've got a connection with them that uh, is quite special. Well, it's that's, uh, I'm glad you said that, um, because that's the best bit, of, one of the best bits of advice I've ever been given for monitoring was by you, um, and not to bull you up too much, was we, we were monitoring honey buzzards. We were sat together and you said to me, you said, Jimmy, you've always got to ask yourself, what is the bird doing? because they're always doing something. It doesn't matter what species it is. And you'll be pleased to hear a friend of mine messaged me the other day saying he'd seen a hobby while he was watching a peregrine site. And my reply to him was, what was it doing? Which way was it going? And, and so, yeah, and he, he, he was like, oh, uh, yeah, so there you go. Uh, he's probably watching this as well now, Joe. Um, so, yeah, that it, you're absolutely right. It's, uh, it's brilliant. So when it comes to nest finding, um, you've mentioned honey buzzards. We've got to we've got to talk about that. You you've you've monitored several different species of raptors. You know, hobbies still obviously, and long-eared owls and, and goshawks and you know buzzards and sparrowhawks that you've mentioned. When did when did honey buzzards? When did the whole honey buzzard thing crop up? Because that's obviously I mentioned when I did a little write up about you to advertise this. That is in the ornithological world, world. That's what everyone knows Steve Roberts for in the UK is, is honey buzzards. When did that kick off for you? Um, the Well, I can't tell you the exact date, Jim, not without going and looking it up. But I, I can remember the circumstances. The hobby was obviously a rare bird um, in southeast Wales, you know, where, where I live. Um, and it was a bird that I um, had hardly ever seen. There were some very, very... Um, uh, old records of hobbies nesting in Mumbleshire, and they were they were the, the odd sighting, and then one of the local keepers did find a nest in in the nineteen sixties, nineteen sixty six, I think. 
but it was a bird I wanted to get to know, the hobby. And, and I had some friends of mine who lived on the fringes of the New Forest in Hampshire. Yeah. And they said, oh, we've got plenty of hobbies down here. So this would have been probably, I don't know when it was the late 80s. It might have been the late 80s. Maybe early 90s, late, late 80s. No, definitely late 80s. Well, or, or the mid 80s even. No, it might have been the mid 80s. Going back a long time. For, anyway, they, they said, we've got hobbies down around us. And you can sometimes see them down there. So I went down there and, and actually, by sheer good fortune, uh, not too much skill. Well, I, you know, I, I, I heard hobbies calling and, and found a nest. And of course, it was a, a sort of enchanting bird to me. I'd always, I had an old a bird book at home, British Birds and, and by Kirkman and Jordan. And all the illustrations in there were by, mostly by AWCB. But there were some by George Lodge and there were paintings of a painting of a hobby in there by George Lodge, sat on a pine tree with it, some three chicks perched on a branch by the side. I thought, oh, I'm never going to see one of those. Never going to see one of those in my lifetime. You know, they were only a hundred pairs and they were all on the heaths of southern England. But this nest was in a pine down in southern England. And I remember, remember when I found it, I went back a couple of weekends on the trot where I was teaching then. And I can remember I, I sat somewhere where I could, um, well hidden, where I could watch this nest and watch the birds coming and going. Yeah. And it was while I was watching that, and enjoying myself, watching the hobbies come in with food and calling and learning about them. That I seen a shadow come through the trees and flying through below the canopy past me was a honey buzzard <laughs> carrying a big lump in its feet. And it sort of meandered off through the wood, obviously to a nest that would have not been far away. And that was the first honey buzzard I'd ever seen. And it was at carrying food. No and the nest wasn't far away from there. And um, I was intrigued by this bird, obviously. It's a bird I, I never dreamt of seeing, you know. I, I knew very little about them. And so, like most keen ornithologists with an inquiring mind, I wanted to find out more about them. And I'm sure you won't be the first or last to know that in my efforts to try and find out more about them, it naively... I ran up against people who considered that the birds belonged to them. And um, they decided that, uh, that that I had no right to um, enjoy the honey buzzards of Hampshire. And um, they set out to make my life a misery. And I think they may have made a wrong move because I made it my life's ambition <laughs> to... Uh, to um, it too get to know this bird <laughs> and do it the right way and um and it's quite ironic really that the people who considered the honey buzzard theirs are now marginalized as far as i'm concerned and where honey buzzards are and we put the honey buzzard into the public domain and people talk more freely about it and importantly we understand more about it in a way that you can use for conservation purposes rather than keeping it all to yourself and, and being selfish about it. And that could never be more important than it is now with the developments that are going on. Examples would be the wind farm developments, which are directly impacting honey buzzard nest sites. And we are fortunate that we have a whole 
wealth of knowledge that we can bring to bear when we're advising developers about um, the impact of uh, or how to, how to lessen the impact and how to mitigate for the developments that are going to take place with Honeybus. And that's only because of, a, a, of 35 years of studying them and not cutting it all up for myself, but publishing it so yeah. that anybody can read it and understand uh, something about them. And, and I don't think that happened in the New Forest for the previous 30 years. <laughs> And I mean, to the to most, yeah, because to most people, the honey buzzard is probably one of the most elusive birds of prey um, in the, you know, in in the country. Just touch on then some of the stuff you've done. Mention about because obviously with your studies, you've 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 done such things as putting cameras on nests. I know you've had a lot of success with putting cameras on nests and colouring in birds and identifying, you know different different pairs different individuals of birds um so what what sort of stuff have you tried to find out over the years well from from the studies that myself and others it's not in yeah. just me lots of people input into this just because my name's at the front of it doesn't mean to say lots and lots of people haven't contributed and lots have um probably one of the major things that initially we're discovering is the 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 places that honey buzzard were breeding you know they were always considered a bird of the, the southern woodlands you know and the new forest is the obvious place in sussex and surrey but being able to establish that honey buzzards are breeding the length and breadth of the uk in tiny numbers but you know up to 500 meters um, coniferous forestry plantations broadleaf woodlands Scotland, Wales, Norfolk, you know, uh, Dorset, uh, all over. There wasn't any sort of geographical or topographical limit to where they could be. So that meant that potentially they could be anywhere. So that opened up uh, um, a, a lot of um, uh, potential for people to find honey buzzards. They yeah. could find them practically anywhere there's a possibility of that so that was a good thing and people did start finding them in rather strange places the second thing is um we were coloring in them for a long time to try and learn something about them and uh, by identifying individuals and that wasn't working because you know you could put a coloring and you'd never see it again yeah. and um with the advent of these little cameras, and they're not uh, anything special, they're the cameras you take on holiday with you. They're um, a camcorder. Forestry yeah. Commission in uh, in Wales um, kindly bought this one, and so did they buy us one at Alice Holt in, in um, England. They bought us a camera as well. And all we do is, um, is when we ring in, when we ring in at about two and a half weeks, chicks are about two and a half weeks old, so that the adult is still coming back to the nest frequently and staying on the nest for some length of time. Yeah. We, we fix a camera at the appropriate distance. We've got a longer life battery on them. We buy them at 50 quid or something, although you buy them, the commission bought them, uh, uh, and uh, they'll run for about six hours. So all you do is put the chicks back in the nest and you bring them, get all yourself organized, get the camera set up. I've got a little camouflage cover that goes on it, press play. And bugger off. 
get out the tree and clear off, leave the camera, you can go back and get it the next day if you need me, it'll run out the battery in the end. Yeah. But what was a revelation was how many adults breeding that had colourings on them. You know, when you consider how few honey buzzards and ring, you know, we're ringing you know, between 10 and 20 a year. Yeah. And when you think it's not many, and yet the number of, of um, hits we were getting, you were finding that these birds were colouring and we could tell where they came from. So I think, without looking at the, the figures, I think we have now had something like nine different adults recorded as breeding um, you know, which we ringed as chicks ourselves and are yeah. now breeding as adults. So we've got the age and the distance they've moved and, and um, where they move from year to year. And I think we've recorded something like 18 um, colouring sightings at nests with cameras. So like one bird may have been recorded year after year after year at different locations or... Um, yeah. and, and that's given us quite an insight into... Um, Buzzards, it proved for a start, it was the first proof that birds bred in Britain yeah. actually returned to breed in Britain because there was still a lot of speculation that these birds that were breeding in the UK, the chicks all went off back to Africa and when they come back, they stayed in France. And I used to think, well, that don't make sense. Why would they all stay in France? <laughs> you know, they, they, everything normally comes back to roughly its natal site. Natal, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, of course, that's what's happening. So that was a, a, a first. Uh, yeah, we've had some fascinating insights. And of course, not only that, the six hours of the camera is giving you some little insights into the birds. I suppose one of the other big things we did is um, Forestry Commission funded a camera on a nest that ran all the time, the whole season. The Forestry Commission yeah. and Neathput Talbot Planning Department did as well. They were very good. Uh, and we've run a camera um, which was was installed before the birds came back. So we were able to record everything that was going on at a, a particular nest for the whole breeding season. Well, I don't think that had ever been done. And yeah. we've done that twice. Uh, and that's been a, 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 a real revelation. You've got to be careful what conclusions you draw from one pair or two pairs. But there's certainly more information there than we had before, put it that way. Brilliant. So we did a lot, yeah. You, obviously, you mentioned about like opening it up so a, a lot more people could uh, could get out and, and find honey buzzards or, or work with you. Is it true that Yolo Williams didn't even know what a honey buzzard was until he met Steve Roberts? Or was that yeah. just a vicious rumour? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, he told me that they'd found the first honey buzzard in Wales. And when I went there, it was a gossip. <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. <laughs> I'm really joking. There's a no, funny sorry. story about, there's a funny story. You, you, they'd found a, a honey buzzard in Wales. I, I, I can say now, I'm sure it wasn't. Yolo and yeah. Red Thorpe between them two. And, and I think, um, what's the guy who was them? I think he's the CCW now. Oh, anyway, I'll think of his name in a minute. Pat Lindley. Pat Lindley. Yeah. He'd seen them first, I think. Anyway, they found these honey buzzards and he, he told me they were breeding. And he said, I can't tell you where they are. He said, I get hung if I tell you where they are. They're the first any buzzards in Wales. Anyway, I, I and a mate of mine, uh, well, it wasn't me, it was a mate of mine actually, went up to North Wales and he rang me to say that um, I've seen some honey buzzards uh, carrying food in this particular location. So <laughs> I went up and lo and behold, the next day found a nest. So I 
drops in to see Yolo. He was still working for RSPB at Newtown. I said, uh, I've got a honey buzzard nest, Yolo. And uh, he said, oh, he said, uh, I said, is it the same one as yours? And he said, well, where is it? And I said, well, where's yours? <laughs> and he said, well, you tell me yours first. And I go, no, you tell me yours first. I said, here we're going. And so in the end, I said to him, well, what sort of trees yours in? And he went, a Douglas fir. I said, well, mine's in a Sitka spruce. So they had the same nests. Anyway, it turns out you're always crap at trees, right? So his, <laughs> so his nest, it was in a Douglas fir, was in a Western hemlock. Anyway, but nevertheless, I was in, so we, we sort of swapped nests in and said, so we got, and, and that's how I got sort of involved with Yolo and, and, and uh, so on, working with those. I know Yolo for years before, but that's how we got involved with starting off with the in Wales. So uh, that, that is a vicious rumor that I've just made up. Sorry, Yolo. Um, <laughs> someone, has, someone has just asked a question What is the honey buzzard population in Wales at the moment? Um, I get asked that question. How many honey buzzards are there in the UK or Wales? I really don't know. I don't know. And and if I said anything, it would be conjuring it out of the air. All I will say is that the the published figures, I think, for breeding honey buzzards, confirmed breeding honey buzzards in the UK, is something between thirty and forty pairs. I think the rare breeding birds report. Yeah. There's no doubt that there are many more than that undetected, but there's no doubt that there are many, many places that look exactly the same as every other place that honey buzzards are frequenting that don't have any honey buzzards for reasons I don't understand. Yeah. The best way I, I could make a stab at the number of honey buzzards in Wales, I think everywhere that we have found a nest in Wales, a, a separate pair of honey buzzards, separate breeding yeah. pair. Even though that's it's not a hundred percent, to my mind, from my experience of honey buzzards, if you found a pair breeding somewhere, and you and they're not breeding there now, they're likely to be breeding somewhere near undetected. They're more yeah. likely to be breeding than not. So if we think of all the nests we've found in Wales over the years, separate pairs, there is something like 16 or 18 different breeding sites yeah. where honey buzzards are bred. And I would consider that would be a good starting point. Those numbers would be a good starting point for saying how many honeys there are in Wales. I'm sure many of those places that nobody is seeing honey buzzards now because nobody's looking by and large, there are still honey buzzards there. Mm -hmm. Do you, have you found with them as well? Uh, just something that's popped into my head while you were while you were explaining that. Then, that when you find one pair, it's often a good good chance that there may be another pair nearby. You'll find another pair because they attract each other, or um, not. So uh, well, I mean, where where we've had some honey buzzard populations, yes, some honey buzzard populations. I mean, I think of the sort of um, in Glamorgan. We had sort of um, four or five pairs at one time in Glamorgan, all in one sort of roughly in one valley. And there were always spare birds kicking about, you know, you'd always have unmated birds who were trying to solicit females and things like that. So, and we've actually got a pair of honeys now nesting in Glamorgan and there's a spare male there. And I, I can't think it's any coincidence that he happens to set up his territory right opposite 
where there's a breeding pair. Now, it could be that it's the only female around and he's going to do his level best to sort of solicit her. I don't know because yeah. he hasn't got a female of his own. I know, I know, well, he hasn't. Last time I looked, he didn't have one. Um, but there are plenty of other places where there are honey buzzards and they appear to be, from our observations, the only ones that are there because. Yeah. What we all often say is if a honey buzzard circles up in the sky, a male, and all of a sudden he starts wing clapping, if he's breeding, he's got a mate and she's sitting on eggs or they've got chicks, and he starts wing clapping vigorously, which they sometimes will, our feeling is it's usually because you can see another one a long way off. You know, yeah. like he might be four miles away or five miles away, you can see one wing clapping in the distance. And it'll spark him off. And we have confirmed that a few times where if we see a bird wing clapping, we'll say, if, what's, if there's more than one of us, we'll say to the other one, start looking around. See if you can't see, you know, down the valley or over the next yeah. hill, if you can't see one over there somewhere with the telescope. And often you, you, you will, well, often enough, we've seen another bird and that's what yeah. sparked, it sparked him off. Yeah. Brilliant. Interesting. Okay, so we've talked about nests, finding nests and cameras, which is a good, and we've mentioned YOLO, which is a good segue into Spring Watch. I mentioned it on, I, I did a little write-up, as I say, to introduce you, um, and I mentioned you're the, pretty much the main, I know there's other people in the team, um, um, but you, you are the, the sort of chief nest finder in many ways on, on Spring Watch. How, how did that come about then? How did you end up landing the job of, yeah, making uh, well, Spring Watch work? I, I have to say, I have to say, I, when I, all the time I've been working for them, I had my own title, nest finder. Yeah. And uh, I, was, I was one of the few people that had one title all to myself. Because, um, you know, the outdoor camera team, there's six in there and the production team have got four in there. I used to have my own little slot. But for some reason this year, I've got lumped at the end of the outdoor camera team. Oh, is, I've lost my status. <laughs> but um, it started off because of YOLO. I mean, YOLO um, uh, was doing work with the Spring Watch team when they were at Anasia. So we're going back about, I don't know, 12 years. They were at Anasia and they needed a tree climber. And because um, okay. obviously the camp, all the cameras that are in trees, somebody's got to climb the tree and put the camera up there. And um, um, he recommended, oh, I got a good mate who can climb trees. So I went up there uh, and they were going to pay me for a day's pay, you know, to climb up and put these cameras up a tree. But of course, once the cameras up, they seem to take an, an enormous amount of time faffing around with wires and computers and screens making sure it's all running, right? Well, yeah. I mooched off and found a black cap's nest and a willow warbler's nest or, or whatever. And when I came back to see if everything was all right or did the camera need something else to do it, they said, oh, no, it's all fine. And then I said, to, oh, I found a black cap and a willow warbler and something other if you're interested. Oh, oh, well, how do you find those? I said, oh, I, I, I like finding nests. I went up and found a few nests. Well, we couldn't find a few more. So I ended up having a few extra days finding nests. And of course, once they started realizing that they could rack up a whole load of nests, which they needed, it escalated from there. You know, it just snowballed. So, you know, I, I became part of the team then um, as the nest finder, which 
suits me. I get to go to some real nice places looking for nests. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I get paid for it, which is even, you know, to do something I love. Uh, it can get a bit wearing in that it sounds quite glamorous. You can go to Minsmere or you can go to Anistir or Cane Gorm's nesting. But sometimes they'll say, you know, well, we've got a power's always an issue with uh, cameras. You've got to get power to them. So they'll get a, a fuel cell in a particular place. And then they'll want you to find nests within a certain radius of the fuel cell. So, you know, you can't find what's not there. So, you you know, you're yeah. slogging the same piece of ground looking for yet another black cap and another willow warbler. And, a, uh, and you know, you come back and say, well, look, I can't find anything down there. They say, oh, well, can you go to the other? Oh, and you've got to go past nice places where there's good birds to keep flogging a, a piece of ground and and yeah. it can get quite it's coming quite hard work yeah yeah this year particularly was hard because a lot free claims do, do you ever get um do you ever feel any pressure you know when so when they say to you or are they pretty good with you you know they say right steve we really need we're i don't know we're in such and such a location it's well known for this species mm. or we really want this yeah. species does that they, they will all pretend that they understand that it's you know trying to find wild creatures you know is not straightforward you can't just turn them on and off they're, they're well hidden they're hard to find and often you know some of the species they want to feature the reason they want to feature them is they haven't featured them before probably because they're not easy to, to feature like a bittern for instance from in, in the reed beds um i mean they wanted a, a cuckoo this year if they could they always want a cuckoo yeah i, I found over 40 reed warbler nests not one cuckoo egg in them you know, you can't, you can't make it happen. And so even though they always are understanding, and I, I got a couple of people that I work closely with, Nigel and Joe and Al, even though they're understanding, they, I don't want to come back and say I haven't found something. You know, I, I get a lot of uh, personal pride out of coming back and saying, yeah, I found the Dartford Warbler that, you, that you, you wanted, and I found the woodlark you wanted, or whatever. I feel good when I do it because we don't have professional pride. And if I come back and say, I couldn't find this and I couldn't find that, they say, oh, well, that's the way it is. But I know they're disappointed because they're looking with expectation as I come back in. Right, yeah. what's he got? You know, what's he got? And if I haven't got what they would really like, yeah. um, we're all disappointed. And I think nobody's more disappointed than I am. Yeah. But it's a funny old game, you know, you can go out and slog all morning and find next to nothing and and then you go in the afternoon you know where you find half a dozen good things you know it's just what it's just it's the way it is yeah next finding what's, what's the thinking of spring watch what have you got any I, I i get told off for asking this question to a few people because because um, and you'll probably be in the same position because you've done so much of it now is have you have you got any real good like memories that or or nests that you think yeah that was a belter that was that was a that was a good one or is there just too many yeah, yeah i can i can tell you uh, at, at um minsmere they wanted a dartford warbler hmm. 
And there weren't hardly any Dartford warblers on the Minsmere site, but there were a few out on the fringes. There was some heather out on the fringes. And I went there one morning and I heard one scold me just once. I don't think I saw it, but it scolded just once. And I went back for breakfast and I said, the only thing I can see is I got a Dartford warbler was chucking it down the rain. I said, I did hear a Dartford warbler on that path. And I just said, oh, a Dartford warbler would be great. It'd be great if we could do a Dartford warbler. So I put all my wet gear, there's nothing else to do. You know, I put all my wet gear on, you know, leggings, you name it, I don't know. You couldn't have had a more unlikely day to find anything worthwhile. Took me tapping stick, went off into the heather, started tapping. I'd only been tapping five minutes. It's off went a Dartford warbler with five eggs, which they filmed through the whole, to the whole lot through to fledging. And going back and telling them I'd found the Dartford, I was chuffed to beans. And I know we looked for a bitten. We had to have a bit of dispensation to go and look for a bitten. We had some sort of chap who was a, who was sort of some expert who was going to tell us how to go about it. They told us which bit of the reed bed we had to go in. We had a team of about six or seven. And we had to line up and then into this piece of reed bed, which they, which they um, had seen the bitten going back and forth. This was the bit that they were, yeah. walked it through. All got out on the other side on the bending, lined up again, walked back through, all got out the other side on the bend, walked across a bit, all back through methodically. And we just got to the last sweep through, and uh, the, it was a funny shape. It was a triangular shape, so I was in the widest end by then. And everybody was getting out on the bending. They said, oh, we'll have to throw the towel in now. And I could see a little bit left that I hadn't been in. So I veered off and went off into this last bit. There's a bitten with four eggs, which was a, which was a, a, a real joy to be able to shout this over here. <laughs> and the, and uh, ironically, when we got back and we told him where we found it, we were in the wrong piece. Not <laughs> <laughs> even where they said we had to look, so they didn't even know that nest was there. It was funny. It, 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 anyway, we filmed that, and it was lovely. It worked lovely. So that was nice. Oh, excellent. My favourite is. For spring watches, the long-eared owls. The oh, they're lovely, yeah. Absolutely lovely. Uh, the loveliest, the loveliest Jimmy of all the owls. I've seen all the northern the nests of all the northern owls except Blakinson's fish owl. Yeah. By the way, that chap Schlatt or Schlatt is his name. Yeah. He's got a book coming out. Okay. On Blakinson's fish owl, yeah. He's got a book. I just saw it advertised. He's got a book coming out. Anyway, apart from that, when I've seen all the northern owls, the nests of the nests of all of them, and I still think, even though there are, there's some lovely owls out there, great grey owls and pygmy owls and snowy owls, the long-eared owl is the most beautiful of all of them. Yeah, he's lovely. It is, yeah, I, uh, especially this in this year as well. I enjoyed it this, seeing the, the long-eared owls this year. Well, mentioning mentioning. That then is probably a good one. Another segue into traveling. Then let's. We, we, I'm just keeping an eye on time. I don't want to run out too much. But um, yeah, traveling. So you've done a fair bit of traveling in your pursuit to um, experience and and see some of the the biggest and the rarest and the yeah, like you say, you know, I know you had a fantastic trip looking for snowy owls. Um, so. Tell us a little bit about that. What you know, talk about the let's talk about the eagles. 
Well, that's the obvious one to talk about because when I retired from teaching, which I retired at 55, so I've been retired a good length of time now. And um, I said to myself then for some, I like forest eagles. I, I like the look of them. You know, I mean, not only are they massively powerful, most powerful eagles in the world they are, um, but they look good too. You know, the, the, the eagles that are in open country are often brown or, you know, they bit, these things are always striped and got crests and God knows what on them and they're killing monkeys. Yeah. They, they enchanting things. So I said to myself, I, I'll set myself a challenge to climb to the nest of the world's three um, giant forest eagles, which would have been the um, harpy eagle in South America, the crowned eagle in Africa, and a Philippine eagle, obviously, in the Philippines. It used yep. to be the monkey-eating eagle, but it changed the name when it needed the national bird, didn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I, I, I had two trips to the to um, um, to see to try and fight to get to that harpy eagle nest, yeah. um, and uh, the first trip was a was a bit of a feeler, really. You know, it was a bit of a challenge. It's, it's not for the faint-hearted uh, getting into the rainforests and um, uh, of um, uh, Guyana. Um, you know, you're staying in ranches with no electric and no running water, and you you're going into the rainforest, but you can only get through by by uh, Amazon boats, you know, and then you've got a camp and eating what you can catch, you know, fish up the river and, you know, it's like everything that walks and crawls is trying to kill you or eat yeah. or sting you or poison you. And, um, uh, and uh, we, I managed to get up to the uh, nest of a harp eagle because of a chap called Dwayne DeFratis, who I'd met on the first trip, who was a right adventurer. Dwayne, I got a lot of time for Dwayne. And um, he was up for a challenge. And I said to him, well, what's the chances of getting up to a harp eagle? He said, um, yeah, I've never, never done that before, he said. And so he sort of got the ropes and got the gear. And I went out a year later when they had a good nest. And um, that was a real fabulous, fabulous experience. You know, it was a hard, um, but climbing up that tree and looking over and climbing up on a big branch and getting into a heart eagle's nest with a big chick, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, the, well probably the highlight of my uh, ornithological nest finding career Brilliant. the crowned eagle i went to zimbabwe and again just flying a kite really trying to find somebody somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody else it was a white farmer who was keen on his birds of prey i flew into harari didn't know him didn't know him. i hope he was going to turn up pick me up you know which he did i stayed on the farm with him i can remember i, I said how much have i got to pay you he said oh how about uh, Five dollars a day or something like that. I, I mean, um, Harari was a bit of a bloody eye opener, but they took me round in the Land Rover and we climbed up to crowned eagle nests and little sparrow hawks and long crested eagles and Vambo sparrow hawks and Dickinson's kestrels. Oh, I had a great, I had a great fortnight. And then you'll know all about the Philippines. The Philippines was was a hard one, you know. Uh, you you can't go and do a Philippine eagle by winging it. You've got to go through the right channels, and, and I had no avenue, but you did, and um, so you're good. 
auspices, we um, we managed to get out to the Philippines and uh, had a fabulous time with the Philippine Eagles at the nest. And we didn't climb up to the nest, which was the only thing we haven't done. We, we can do that yet. We don't want to do it. There's always another year. That's what I always think. Um, but I suppose the view we had into the nest from that hide was better than climbing up to it. it. It was to see that adult coming in, bringing in civets and standing on the nest and feeding the chick and, and rattling off the camera. And, and it was only just in front of us. It was just yes. a fabulous, fabulous experience. And so if you'd asked me, would I rather climb up and look in or, or rather sit in that hide and look at the adult coming in with food, I probably would prefer the latter if I had a choice of the two. But I've done that now, and I know that you feel like we we got to finish off by making sure we climb up and because yeah. they want to get yeah. a check out, don't they, for doing some satellite work? So we'll, we'll go back yeah. and do that. Yeah, we'll go. And, yeah, we'll definitely try and go go before back. Before I'm out. too old. Before you too well, we'll pull you up there. Be all right. Yeah, we'll 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 definitely be back there. That's for that's for sure. Um, someone has just asked a question. I I don't want to ignore the people watching and asking. Um, about. Have you ever seen wing clapping in common buzzards? I, no, I no, they don't wing clap. No, no, yeah. they hover. Yeah. They hover, and I think sometimes people can mistake some of the things that common buzzards do for honey buzzard wing clapping. But right. if you've seen a honey buzzard wing clap, it's absolutely unmistakable. You know, it actually sticks its wings vertically above its body and floats through the air for a few seconds quiver in the wings in a completely upright position most weird and the bird is just floating for a, a few seconds before it picks up a head of steam and does it again but once you've seen it i mean you'll go straight look at that and, and um you'll know that you've not seen anything else do that i, mean, I know some people have seen buzzards they think are wing clapping but they Fair, fair enough. There you go. That's answered your question. Um, right. I always finish with the same thing as well, or the same question. Um, and you're pretty good at giving me pearls of wisdom. Um, so if you were to give any, if there's any ornithologists, nest finders, naturalists watching this, Steve, whether it's to do with honey buzzards, some it's the presidential phones going off again. Um, if, uh, if, yeah, if you'd give anyone one bit of advice... And it can't be the bit of advice we've already talked about, about always ask yourself what the bird's up to. What, what, go on, what would you give for nest finders out there or people wanting to get into monitoring? One that's, not, that's not straightforward. That's not straightforward, Jim, is it? Um, <laughs> one piece of advice. Anything. Anything you've found that you think, yeah, that's really good. Well, well if it, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be advice. It's just... An observation, I would I'd give an observation in that my good late friend, Malcolm Collard, who was a fantastic bird nester, um, fantastic bird nester. Uh, he, obviously, he's dead now. Um, but we were close friends. He was my big honey buzzard mate, and we were close friends. And we probably came and did the, the, the uh, harpy eagle with me and a few other things. Um, what we used to say to each other all the time, was every day we woke up, we thanked our lucky stars that for whatever reason, we were blessed with um, the interest that we have. 
our enthusiasm for nest finding, for nature, for the countryside, for the environment. Not everybody has it. Most people don't have it. And to, to, be, to have that enthusiasm that has lasted my whole life so that I can't wait to get out to bed in the morning because I'm going to go and look for this or look for that. I can be excited going to bed in the evening because I know I'm going off looking for something in the morning. And I'm just as excited now at, at, at 67 as I was at seven, if you know what I mean. I'm just as excited about it now. We used to thank our lucky stars that we, we had that passion. We were lucky to have it. When I hear people say, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do when I retire, or I'm a bit bored, or they're washing the car on a Sunday, or you know what I mean, or I think we'll yeah. go shopping with the missus, whatever. I think, thank you, Lord, that I, um, I've got the passion that I've got. Uh, and uh, if anybody else is, can conjure that up, it doesn't really matter if it's bird nesting or train spotting or stamp collecting. As long as you're passionate, I would say get yourself a real passion in life that um, motivates you. That's what I would say. Brilliant. Spot on. That's what we like to hear. Right, okay, we're uh, we've pretty much well, we've just sneaked over the hour mark, so um, yeah, we'll uh, we'll uh, say our goodbyes and thank you. So, thank you, Steve, for coming on. I've been I've been looking forward to this one. I know I, I made that quip at the start about next <laughs> next week, but I have. This is hey, it, it takes something for me to have to put up with you and technology. That's how <laughs> that's how keen yeah, I was, I was to getting, get, to get I was you on. My temper, I was getting my temper up earlier on. Because you're trying to make out it's going to be easier than it was. <laughs> <laughs> it was only an it was only an update and a click on a link. But anyway, we'll not start that. No. Let's not fall out live. Anyway, um, right. Cheers, mate. Thank you That's very okay. much. My for, pleasure, Jim. My pleasure. All the best.